0: This is Martyr She Wrote, and I'm Anna Clark Miller, a religious trauma therapist. This podcast is for survivors of religious trauma and abuse, so consider this your trigger warning. If you want to learn more or support the podcast financially, check out my new book called The Religious Trauma Survival Guide. Details are at EmpathyParadigm.com. Don't worry, though, you can still listen even if you haven't contributed financially. (laughs) Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs, today we have a couple of people here joining me. We have Josh Miller, who is going to be co hosting with me today. And our guest is Natalia. She is an old friend. And actually, we used to work with her in crisis mental health. Natalia is a licensed social worker in the state of Texas and Washington. She was a bilingual therapist for victims of crime and sexual assault and has been working in medical social work for the past several years. Natalia, welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here with both of you.
1: Hi, we are so happy to have you join.
0: Natalia, what's kind of your uh, history with religion? Um, So it's an
2: interesting story. I was actually initially raised Catholic for about the first 11, 12 years, Um, went through, you know, baptism as an infant and classes before my first communion. And my mom actually felt really disconnected from the church. And she ended up being invited to a very large church in the community Because her desire was not for her kids to just be bored, but also, you know, kind of be active in the church and take an interest in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we went from Catholic to Southern Baptist. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) it uh, it was an interesting change for sure. And so I immediately kind of got involved in there you know their kids ministry and you know went through the middle school and high school ministries there and that's really kind of the student ministries what developed my faith if you will or you know the christian culture that you know carried me through young adulthood
1: and were you bought in at that point like going through all of the youth ministries and things like that was it something that you enjoyed and wanted to do or did it feel routine what was that like
2: oh a hundred percent I bought into it really quickly I think it was easy to buy into because the kids ministry was just so active and had all of these activities that drew Mm -hmm. you in it was fun it was entertaining I wanted to be there Mm -hmm. every Sunday every Wednesday I was in Awana's you know I was in the student choir and It was something, oddly enough, that my parents didn't understand why I wanted to be there so much. I think especially because they didn't grow up connected into church as youth. They just, they went to church on Sundays and had their Bible study on Sundays. And then that was kind of it in terms of investment for them. Whereas me, I had these adults and friends, you know, investing into my life and, you know, playing it. A more active role into the spiritual development, whereas my parents didn't really have a hand in Mm that.
1: Well, and that's kind of the difference between Catholicism and that branch of evangelical Christianity as well. You know, a lot of, there are a lot of Catholics that there isn't that level of engagement. You know, they go, they do Bible study, they have the attendance record, but there's not necessarily the type of I guess, intentional engagement, discipleship, like evangelizing, like that type of thing that comes with a Southern Baptist upbringing as well. So I guess that makes sense that, you know, for your mom who was raised Catholic or who was at least part of the Catholic church for so long, had quite the different experience going now into Southern Baptist than you did, where that's all you knew.
0: Yeah. Culturally, you know, we're we're talking about the difference between Catholic culture and evangelical culture, but you are also a person of color. How do you think that played into your experience?
2: You know, it took a minute to really recognize, and it probably wasn't until my early 20s that I really kind of introspectively started to think about how this may have impacted me. So, you know, there's a large portion of the Catholic community that is Hispanic. And so that's kind of, those were the people that I was around. I was around primarily Hispanic kids, bilingual speaking kids. And then I ended up, it wasn't just a, you know, Southern Baptist church, but a mega Southern Baptist church where attendance was upwards of 10,000 in a weekend. And it's probably even more so now, you know, in the last 15 years. And when I look back on that experience, I think I knew maybe five or six other people of color mm. in my youth group. In the high school choir, they would take about 200 to 250 kids on a mission trip. Mm. And there are maybe four or five of us, including my brother, <laughs> right? <laughs> one of like four Hispanic kids. And so we were in Plano, which is a suburb of Dallas, which is a primarily white community. But I think looking back on it, I felt alone. So I'm a first generation Mexican-American, and I'm very proud of that. In the Hispanic community, especially when you're, when you've immigrated, I think something that my parents learned You don't stir the pot if you're treated unfairly, if you're underrepresented, you just take everything as it comes, whether it's justified, whether it's fair, it doesn't matter the circumstance. You blend into the community so that you can just make it. And I think I inadvertently took in those tactics and it's not something that my parents necessarily blatantly taught me, like, don't stir the pot, don't make any waves, Right. But I think I innately learned to blend into my community and almost whitewashed myself in a sense where I didn't speak Spanish. You know, I came from a very physically affectionate culture and household, but showing that same type of affection can label you as Oh, well, like, are you gay Um, situation, which happened more than once, not necessarily in the high school church setting, but actually later on in my early college years. And so I think a lot of my culture, I hid to kind of blend into my community around me.
0: Yeah. Did it feel like you were experiencing overtly racist things in the church
2: it was more of I wasn't represented my experience was never overt or I never read it as overt Mm. and it really didn't come until later on in my high school years in college years when the first experience I had was when uh, Mike Huckabee actually was invited to be a guest speaker on a Sunday morning. His views were rather conservative. And I think in that moment, I didn't realize which way politically I aligned myself. I aligned myself with what I was being taught from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. But I think even then I knew that inviting someone who is active in politics was not right Hmm. Um, and that they were coming from a position of power.
0: Yeah. Just to echo that, I, I definitely remember being in church communities where politicians would be invited and talked about. And I remember feeling just really uncomfortable with that. And I remember how jarring it was, especially like Obama era when those like divisions started really coming up at church more?
2: Absolutely. So I was a sophomore in high school. Our principal was wonderful. Um, So I came from a very diverse high school and my principal was actually black and he was a former Olympic runner and just had a really great vision for his high school students. And he had some type of connection, but when former President Obama was starting his campaign, he actually spoke at my high school. And I thought it was tremendous. Mm -hmm. And then I remember being at a gathering for, it was at my parents' friends from Bible study. And they were having a conversation about the Antichrist. And that the possibility of if President Obama became president, that he could have been the Antichrist. I remember that.
1: Mm-hmm, me too.
2: And so I think, like I said, I don't think anything was overt, but it was small jabs. I think when the political scheme was changing, mm-hmm. where I realized I don't know that people of color are safe in this community.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being a first-generation Mexican-American immigrant, were there things that were said about immigration that felt othering to you?
2: Absolutely. I think the primary thing was immigration, just overall, in identifying people as illegal. Mm. A person is not a law, a person is a person. And my parents' story, both of my parents are one of seven. So my mom came to the States when she was 12 years old, did not know any English at all, was thrown into middle school, not knowing English at all. My dad was a little bit more fortunate. Um, He had already been working towards a college degree um, at a very good university in Mexico and then decided to come to the States at the age of 21, also not knowing the English language. Both came on tourist visas and stayed past the expiration, which is not an uncommon thing to happen. Both of my parents ended up becoming legalized residents uh, under. The Reagan administration, believe it or not. Hmm. And so both of my parents are now US citizens, and my mom actually holds dual citizenship still. The idea that someone comes to a country to better their lives because there is no hope for them or a minimalistic future for them in their country of origin was unfathomable in my church community. And so it was very easy for conversations to be had around me not knowing my background just because I blended in, remember? Not knowing that this is how my parents came into the country. Technically legal, but morally wrong from their standpoint. Mm. And so I think... What ended up happening is because my parents followed the law, they contributed economically, they paid their taxes, they were quote-unquote good Christian people, my family and I were the exception to the rule that they held. Hmm. And that was the marginalized feeling that I started to experience. I'm not necessarily a person to you. Or I am, but I am the exception to the rule that you have for an entire population.
1: Mm -hmm. Until you're not. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's such an interesting and horrible thing to have to experience. I think that there is definitely this proximity to whiteness. That I guess, like, the closer you are to the majority, the more you can blend in and enjoy some of the privileges that the white majority will like grant you, which is horrible. But there is still this inherent othering and power dynamic of like, no, we are allowing you to enjoy these privileges. We are allowing you to be a part of our in group, but you are not. You're not part of that.
0: I'm curious, like with all of those impacts of racism and, and just miseducation, were there parts of like religious trauma that maybe weren't related to race that you experienced? Yeah. And it actually, it wasn't something that I realized
2: until within the last year, year and a half. Hmm. I think the idea of being a good kid, being a good Christian kid, um, you know, this idea of being godly or a woman of God being pure was really ingrained. And so I believe that there were good intentions in the Bible in the way that it was being taught to me of morality. Mm -hmm. But what it ended up creating in me was the need to be perfect because of my sinful nature I was no good and apart from God I am nothing and so anytime I struggled with whatever sin what have you disrespect impure thoughts I felt like I wasn't good enough and so it was this constant need to strive not just for approval Mm. but also for perfection which obviously is just, I mean, I'm setting myself up for failure. And so I felt this need to strive for perfection from a Christian worldview and then unintentionally unrelated to religious trauma. The need to prove myself worthy of my parents' sacrifices as a first-generation Mexican-American to prove that I am the American dream mm-hmm. and that I can succeed because of the decisions my parents made. It was a constant need to prove myself for and it instilled an anxiety in me that I could never make a wrong decision. Yeah. And holy cow, the anxiety I felt in the workplace, in my friendships, in my relationships romantically it took a lot I mean I'm 31 now and I've only just realized that you know religious trauma is from that my anxiety comes from that and it's a lot to come to terms with something that I thought was so pure did end up having this very
0: negative side effect
2: in my life
0: Hmm. Yeah. That reminded me of something you said earlier about sort of like you were the quote exception to the rule that everybody had in their mind of, you know, what an immigrant was. And I imagine that that also added some pressure for you to sort of continue playing whatever that role was that you thought they saw you as or needed you to be. And there's just so there's so much to lose by making a mistake or letting that mask slip.
2: Yeah. And I think that's what I realized, you know, as I've gotten older is I don't know how much was my authentic self. You know, I believe that there were very real moments in my relationships with others and very, authentic moments of who I am, but I don't know how much of it was a mask to blend in Mm -hmm. and to have that safety of being in a community that accepted me. And so I didn't speak out for a very long time about my thoughts on immigration within a faith community, because I didn't want to lose those relationships
0: When did that come to a head?
2: During the Trump administration, you know, and especially in 2016, during his campaign, you know, I'll be very open. I'm not afraid of naming it anymore. I felt very unsafe during that time. And it was very hurtful thinking back on those years of this community that I was a part of that I loved so dearly who said that they loved me so dearly
1: Mm.
2: stood behind a person who was against hope against love against personhood Mm. and not just personhood but my personhood the personhood of my parents and I think that's when the facade really fell for me. I saw the signs that this evangelicalism was really just white nationalism.
0: Mm.
2: And that broke my heart.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's about the time, you know, come 2016, that's about the time you and I both took a turn in our own personal development, because, you know, you were very candid with me about how a lot of that was affecting you and your family and things like that. And that's also, of course, the year of, you know, the Pulse shootings. And so I think you and I were both having some very significant life shattering moments Mm -hmm. where we had to make a decision of like, okay, what's, what's going to give here. I'm only strong enough to do one thing and I have to choose between surviving or holding up this mask because I don't have the strength for both. And I think both of us with the help of one another and others in our life chose to survive instead of, you know, keep masking, keep blending in uh, in the ways that we do. But yeah, I do. I remember a lot of those conversations and how just, fearful you were, not just of like physical safety, but of what this could mean for you in the future, but also what does it mean in regards to how you relate to your past in the church and to people in your life from that time?
2: It it was hard too, because and you knew this, Josh, you know, I had a crisis of faith before all of that happened around 2014, 2015, I was really, really questioning, you know, God's existence and my position in this world and in this universe. And it was really, really painful because it was also one of those things like, okay, yes, Doubt is normal, but you shouldn't doubt God because he's always been there for you and he's the one constant in your life. And so questioning my, not just my personhood, but my innate being was so painful that I was in tears constantly because how could I question the one thing that I felt created me? And so it was six to twelve months of really wrestling with that because it was so painful, I kind of put it back into a box and held on to what I could. Uh and for me, that was still okay. I believe that there is a greater being. I still believe that, you know, Jesus is the Son of God and I still believe parts of the Bible, but I disagree with a whole lot of it at this point. And I think also I put it back in a box because I couldn't let that community go, Mm. you know, because it was so real and they are still real. You know, many of those relationships are are still very real and wholesome and life-giving to me. And so when 2016 happened, it was really frustrating because I had held on to what I thought were the good parts. And those good parts still turned out to be toxic. Mm. And I was so mad. Not only was I hurt, but I was also mad at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember feeling at that point in my journey, like it was a scale where the side of all of the good stuff about my faith community was getting lighter and lighter and then the side with all the bad stuff it was like just new shit was getting piled on all the time and new disappointments and new heartbreaks you know and I can only imagine for you on so many levels how difficult that must have been to have to make the decision of do I stick around and like how do I square this in the south it's so hard to find a church that doesn't espouse a lot of those very intolerant views, did did you look around and try and find like other churches or other communities that were maybe more aligned?
2: At that point, I was going to a church that was very outspoken about biases and overt and even quiet racist remarks towards people of color Mm. and very much owned that he came from a place of privilege and that Black Lives Matter is not a political statement, but it's a very real statement for the safety of your brothers and sisters who are Black in the community. And so I remember being okay and feeling a little bit safe in that aspect But then I had this shift where I didn't want to be a part of a community that didn't look like me anymore. And so I was very interested in finding a church that had more people of color in positions of leadership,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: not just the worship leader, not just the
1: the head of children's ministry.
2: ministry. (laughs) Uh, And And I think I just felt like I needed a break. Not long after that is when I ended up going to a church that had a small amount of POC, but there was enough that I felt safe at that point. And so my husband and I, when we'd gotten married, we were going to the Acts 24 church Mm -hmm. in Fort Worth. Um, Some things I don't agree with there anymore either, but there was enough that I could agree with and stand behind that I felt comfortable going.
0: Yeah.
1: So when you were talking about that specifically, like finding a church, maybe I don't agree with everything, but there's enough there that I agree with that I feel safe enough with that I can attend and be okay with. That sounds very similar to the way that you were describing your proximity to whiteness as well. Like there's a lot of things there that like are hurtful or possibly unsafe for you, but there are certain things that are fine that you are benefiting from in some way. Like, so I guess my question is, do you see that through line as well? Or is that like a me specific tie-in?
2: Oh no, it's gotten worse over time Mm, Um, or more intense over time, I should say. There is a lot, a lot less that I'm willing to tolerate at this point and being back in the South. So listeners, my husband is in the military. We were stationed in the state of Washington for four and a half years. And I recently moved back less than a year ago. And so I went through a culture shift.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Being up in the Pacific Northwest is a lot more accepting and freeing. And now I am around a lot of folks who don't think similarly as me anymore, which is not always a bad thing. But when it questions the integrity or the value of my life is when I have a problem. Mm
0: -hmm. That sounds selfish of you.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so, you know, uh 2020 happened. I had a baby three weeks after everything shut down. And we had stopped going to church at that point. Even on this little island that we lived on, there were a lot of churches. And we would be a part of one for about six months. And then the pastor or a guest pastor would say some really shitty remark. And I'm like, I cannot take this. And so my husband, Lord love him. I love him. was like, okay. He never questioned me because I think he understood she doesn't feel safe here. We need to move on. And then we just, we just never went back. And so, you know, I had mentioned that My parents didn't understand my involvement or my need to be involved when I was in the student ministry. And so they didn't develop their faith later on until I left for college. Mm -hmm. My dad ended up being a deacon for like 10 years. You know, they would serve as the translators on mission trips to, you know, Latin countries. And so My parents were very beloved and still are very beloved in the church. So when I took a step back from church, they're like, what do you mean you're taking a step? Why aren't you going to church? And it's not something that they can understand because they didn't grow up in the youth culture and they don't get the things that I see as toxic. It's not just a political view, mom and dad. It's, But spiritually and in my person, this hurts me and I can't be around that anymore. I don't want to be around it anymore. My parents actually, after 2020, ended up leaving the church that they were a part of because they felt that otherness. Mm. They felt marginalized and felt very hurt for a very long time. They walked away for a little over a year trying different churches But they had been a part of their Bible study in that community for so long, nothing else fit or worked for them. They ended up going back, but my dad's no longer a deacon. Mm. And they have set pretty firm boundaries on who they spent time with now. So they understand that piece, but because they didn't grow in the purity culture or this need for perfection that's unattainable they don't understand why I've taken a step from church and so finding a church now in the south has been so difficult and really challenging and it's it's discouraging and after you know so many churches it's like well man like is there one that I can agree with like are my expectations too high is my
1: intolerance
2: too high? I don't think so.
1: Can you have too high of standards when you're talking about eternity, you know?
0: It sounds like you've been doing a a cost benefit analysis for a very long time of, you know, what are the benefits? What are the harms? And it sounds like even your parents did that for a while. And ultimately they decided- it was worth it, you know, like the benefits outweighed the cost for them. But is there a hard line for you that you won't cross? Like, despite all the benefits that you could get from the church community, like are there certain things that you just are not willing to compromise on?
2: I have realized within the last few years I can't stand behind or be a part of something that others another population. I can't do it anymore. I want the community I'm a part of not just to fill this spiritual need of being a part of something that's bigger than myself, but to be modeling not just who they believe Jesus to be, but the Jesus that I believe to be just and fair and open and loving and accepting of quote unquote lifestyles that they don't agree with josh i don't know if you knew this you were my first real gay friend
1: <laughs> um, and what a what an introduction to this community
2: <laughs> when it, it was in college that my views change of like a sinful nature and lifestyle situation of like no I truly believe, like, God made this person as perfect as they can be. And so in my very, very dear friendships with people who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community, that's where my intolerance is. I cannot be a part of a community that others or despises, or does not believe in the worthiness of the livelihood of someone from the LGBTQ plus community. And so finding a church in the South that understands that has proven to be difficult. But that's my hard line. That's where I have realized that's my hard line. Because immigration, that that's like policy stuff like not that it's not important but that is something that i can i can work with you on that mm. but when you despise another population for who they are and who i believe god created them to be that's not okay with me
1: i knew that i was one of your first like deeper friendships. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations over the years about how hard it is for a lot of people in the LGBTQIA plus community to initiate, but especially sustain a deep relationship with a practicing Christian for a lot of reasons. And I spent So much of my life fighting in the church and out of the church, not just to be viewed as worthy, but to have someone take the initiative and act on that worthiness. Because I've had plenty of people now over the years agree and be like, yes, we're affirming, yes, we're this and we're that, and you are a person and you deserve equal rights and these types of things. But then there's no, there's no action, there's no follow-up on that. And knowing that I have multiple people now who have made that their hard line and have said like, no, (laughs) this is a boundary that will not be crossed. My actions are going to reflect that. It's just, it is so healing to have people do the fighting for me, finally.
0: I wonder Natalia, like as a person of color, what can white people do to make you feel actually welcomed and like to demonstrate that we actually value what matters to you and what hurts you, you know, like people who are in the South who are religious, what could they say or do that would demonstrate safety?
1: Yeah. How do we fight for you in the same way that now you're fighting for our community?
2: Well, as a spokesperson
1: for (laughs) all, people,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I can't say that I have figured that out completely. What I can say is that listening and believing the stories from the people you're around who don't look like you or who are different than you is more powerful than we give credit to someone's story is so important. I had a mentor tell me once that I was sharing a part of my life with her that was deeply personal and very vulnerable. She talked about how she would hold that space because that was holy ground now, that that was set apart from everything because it was a part of who I was. And when she shared that with me, that really framed when people tell me their stories. It It really shaped it differently for me. And so when someone shares their story with you on truly how difficult it is to be a person of color in a predominantly white community, believe them when they tell you that this person in leadership or this comment hurt them, regardless of how minute it may have been. Acknowledging that you don't necessarily understand from your point of view, but you're choosing to try to understand because someone you love or claim to love is telling you about this hurt. Mm. And I think that those are the first steps in helping create safety of, I believe that you're hurt because of this situation that happened. And then ownership, there's so much that comes in taking ownership of a shitty thing you may have said that you did not realize had a backhanded intent behind it. I believe that most of us, us being humans and people, can grow if they choose to. When I stop having faith that you can grow as a person and understand me, that's when I really lose hope. And I think that's why I have set those boundaries. Hopelessness. It's a tough place to be in. Mm -hmm. And so when you choose to listen to my story, well, not just choose to listen, but choose to believe me, that gives me hope that we can move forward together.
0: Yeah. Speaking of moving forward, you have four daughters. (laughs) And I sure do <laughs> and and the, the lights lights of, of my life. life. <laughs> so I assume you've thought about, you know, just like what you want to do differently or how you want to talk to your girls about what they may experience in religious settings related to their racial identity. Um, is there anything that you are gonna try and be intentional about related to that?
2: Yes. So raising four young, strong, independent women is a task that I did not realize that I was going to be tasked with
1: Mm.
2: when I thought about creating my family. But I think as I continue to reflect on my journey as a POC woman, as a person who grew up in the evangelical setting. I don't want them to grow up with the same anxieties I did. I want them to make the decision to be a good person for themselves and not just to seek my approval or the approval of God or Jesus. You know, I think inadvertently, their comments from grandparents like, you need to make good decisions. Jesus wants you to be good, you know, and innocent on its own. But because of my background, I hear red flag. Yeah. And I don't want my children to live with guilt because that was so painful to me, feeling like I wasn't enough. And I want my children to know that they're enough and that it's okay for them to make mistakes and that they can come to me when they make mistakes. Not only that, but... I want them to realize that they own their bodies Mm. and they get to make a decision with it. And their body is their own and no one else has claim to it at all. Not even the person that you're dating or end up marrying.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, I talked about the perfectionism and then, you know, purity culture of needing to be pure and abstaining from sex and sexual immorality. And that created its own. Whole other you know, a whole other realm of insecurities and questions later on and identification of okay, well now I'm married, so what do I do with the sexuality now situation? Uh-huh. Uh and they're you know, they are not in their teen years yet, but I want them not only to understand bodily autonomy, but We are sexual creatures, you know, and that's going to be a thing that happens. So if we're going to have sex, we're going to do it safely. Yeah. That is a conversation that my parents did not have with me. Mm. And so I want to make sure that that is the conversation I have with them Mm. of how to make these decisions safely for yourself and not for anyone else's approval.
0: Yeah. You know, as you were telling the story of you and your parents, it sounds like there were a lot of parts of your experience that were different than theirs. And that was, you know, why it was difficult for them to see or understand what was potentially harmful for you, because you were a different human growing up in a different era, you know, with different influences And I imagine that's going to be the case with your girls too. Like their experience is going to be totally different than yours. And I love how curious of a person you are, because I think that is really the, that's the secret, right? Is just asking and listening and not being like, well, that's not what I experienced. So it can't be right. You know?
2: Yeah. I hope to be a person that my girls can come to. I want them to know that not only is it okay for them to ask questions of me, but I want it to be okay for me to ask questions of them too. And, you know, I want to raise these strong daughters who not only know who they are, but feel safe in who they are in this world that generally feels unsafe these days. Um, But my home will be a place, is a place that, is loving and accepting. And I don't always get it right. But I think one thing that I learned is normalize apologizing to your kids mm. because, and it's very humbling coming to your kid and saying, you know what, I lost my ish and I shouldn't have, like I'm the grown up, and I lost control of my emotions and I should not have yelled at you and I should not have said those things. And the grace that my kids give me of, it's okay, mommy. You know, I see that as we're we're mending towards, like, a really strong parent-child relationship. And I do need to say, like, I, I have a very positive relationship with my parents. I do. Not every parent gets it right 100% of the time. There were times that my parents did own up to things or other times that they didn't. But I have enough of a trusting relationship with them. That I have set some boundaries in certain things and my parents have come to understand, you don't want to ask me what I think about this topic because I'm not going to agree with you. And for the sake of our relationship, we're not going to talk about it, but it's enough that I want my kids to be around my parents Mm. because my kids adore my parents and my parents adore them.
0: Yeah. So You've mentioned a little bit about like where you are spiritually and religiously. Now, is there anything that you have found has been really healing or restorative for you just spiritually since sort of coming to grips with this religious trauma?
1: Besides of course, being friends with us. Obviously,
2: (laughs) obviously, you know, being able to talk about, The questioning and the wrestling of this, I don't want to call it an existential crisis anymore because it doesn't feel as painful as it did eight years ago. But questioning my thought process in the authority of a higher power Mm. or questioning the authority of the evangelical church or church in general being able to have those conversations has been really life-giving to me. And I would say healing because as I have said, I love my husband very dearly, but he also did not grow up in the evangelical youth culture. So he doesn't necessarily understand my pain or the wrestling that I'm going through. Mm. I can talk to him about it, but it's not something he understands and he's okay with that. So he's given me, the space to talk to other people who get it. And even if I don't land in the same place as the people that I'm talking to, I'm still encouraged by their journeys and kind of where they've landed.
0: Yeah. Listeners, just so you know, I have like a little deconstruction group that meets every week and Natalia is part of it. And it has been so cool. Like you said, we're we're all sort of in different places. And and I don't know that anyone's landed anywhere because I I certainly know I plan to change a whole lot more mm-hmm. um, in the future. But it has been so great to hear the same fears and the same joys and the same questions echoed in so many different voices. And that to me has just given me the sense of belonging and safety that I have been missing for so long from church.
1: Yeah, I think that so many of us really are only used to having some of those really hard conversations when we're in that crisis moment, right? That existential crisis, but now that we're kind of out of that crisis point and just in existential stress (laughs) I guess um but more in like maintenance or baseline like I mean I think I'm still very much in a free fall when it comes to all of that like I definitely haven't landed anywhere either but it feels almost like (laughs) like synchronized skydiving like we're all kind of free falling together in like a pattern almost um yeah and if I know that if my parachute goes out there's you know 10 other people around me that can latch on if need be that type of thing so it definitely has been so interesting and i think life giving for many of us in the same way having that type of community to talk about those conversations with when we're not at a crisis point
2: yeah it's been nice because i mean as i mentioned i truly like really haven't been to church since 2020 and so I really miss that community part of sharing those deep thoughts and and not only the deep thoughts but the questioning. You know, the, the, the church is supposed to be this safe place to ask questions, but you can only ask questions if they're about Jesus and not necessarily Jesus's teachings. Uh, and if it's, <laughs> you know, and so it's so odd. And so it's been nice to really be a part of that. And so that has given new life in terms of friendships for me the spiritual aspect you know I'm I'm kind of free falling is is how I feel I really truly do miss the church sometimes in this this euphoric feeling of where you feel spiritually connected to something bigger than yourself it's hard too because I did get some of that when I was in Washington and hiking and seeing nature And I live in a concrete jungle, Mm -hmm. so I don't I don't have that same connection anymore with something bigger than me. And so I think that I'm having to I need to lean more into my kids. You know, I don't I'm not a parent who like obsesses over their children. I love my children, but I don't believe they are my life. But I do believe that their lives are bigger than mine. And I think connecting with them also contributes to like a greater future and investment. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm starting to lean into is really being intentional as a parent, not just like keeping them alive from sunrise to sundown, (laughs) but I'm still looking for that other, something bigger than me. And I, I genuinely do hope that I can find it in a church that, I can find more than I align myself with and than not because I miss it. Mm -hmm. I do, you know, I miss having that. I don't feel as empty as I used to when I first had that crisis, but it's more, you know, like Josh said, it's just more stress. It's a manageable, livable stress at this point. Yeah. (laughs)
0: You know there are so many of us in our generation, and I and I assume generations to come, that are leaving sort of mainstream, more more dogmatic type religious groups, and I'm hopeful that those of us who have experienced that great community and that connection to something bigger and that like sort of corporate experience of awe that we can find a way to recreate that without the trauma you know and like that's that's what i want to do is figure out a way to actually have a safe place to spiritually connect that isn't also inflicting all this unintended harm and so like i'm hopeful that even if we haven't quite figured out the right recipe yet like we can keep working on it and we can be intentional with that because obviously it's important. I agree. So we usually end with a little funny church culture story and I've heard a million from you. So I know you've got them. Is there anything like cringy from past experiences that you would like to share?
2: So I actually have two. One of them technically isn't mine. It's mine by proxy. (laughs) Hey, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So one is, like, a little bit more POC-related um, in the church. So as I had mentioned previously, my brother and I were, like, one of, like, maybe five POC in the church. And, you know, the youth groups are, you know, the more hip ones tend to do, like, these advertisement videos and hype vids to get you involved and, like, to want to come to whatever next event they have. Mm-hmm. My brother had um, my brother had a speech delay. And so when he was in speech therapy, they recommended that he only be raised with one language or else he would get too confused. Very different because I grew up with both languages in the home. So because he was going to school in English, my parents really only spoke to him in English and he speaks very, very minimal Spanish even now. So the church decided to ask my brother if he wanted to be a part of this promo video for like a Cinco de Mayo
0: oh. event
2: that they were having. Oh, no. They had him wear a sombrero. <gasps> and if I remember, he had a mustache and oh. maracas. No. <laughs> no. But because he didn't speak Spanish, what they did was they really just played the video backwards. <gasps> Oh, my God. (laughs) My brother was happy to be a part of it. But this story, when this story just recently came to me within the last couple of months, and I was like, that was not okay. And I hope that the the people who helped make that video look back on it like, oh, that wasn't okay. We shouldn't do that again. So I hope that they haven't um but that was just like a very cringe like
0: oh my
1: god oh that's horrible oh my god
2: (laughs) yeah so that memory came to me all of a sudden and I needed to share that yeah that is definitely cringy (laughs) the other cringe story that I have so I kind of shared it with you Anna Josh get ready oh no so you know these big youth groups have They're like a big weekend in the spring where it's like the mini retreat. They're normally known as D now. This one was called freedom. Freedom from what? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But we had a uh, guest speaker who was wonderful. When he preached, he explained that he, whenever he would preach, he would take his shoes off. And he talked about the story of, Moses in the burning bush and how he had to take his shoes off because it's walking on holy ground. So anytime he preached, his shoes were off. Cool. And one of my friends and I were like, wow, that is so cool. Church is holy ground. So we then spent that weekend in for several Sundays after walking barefoot throughout the church.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And it was so cool. It was and just, it
0: was
2: very cool.
1: Yeah, you were yeah. very popular.
0: You must have been on it fire is... for Jesus. Oh,
1: God. I,
2: I was on fire for Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Natalia, thank you so much for having a very candid conversation with us. We really appreciate it. It was a
2: pleasure. Thanks for having me
1: come back anytime.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Shoot me an email at anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.